0: And welcome on in, ladies and gentlemen, to the Check Your Brain podcast here, wherever you are listening to this, Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazer. I am Tony Mazer. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever until somebody decides that they they get hip to me and they kick me off at some point but uh, again it's uh, tony Mazer, the host of the check your brain podcast and i'm pleased to be joined by somebody i've been a fan of for a long time he's a writer he's an author he's a performer actor uh, a real renaissance man in our day and m- many days uh, I, look i've just been a fan of his he's been all over the place that's bruce Valange. he really needs no introduction but i could give him one if he wants to me to stroke him a little bit
1: jazz hands <laughs> <laughs> there they are so Bruce,
0: you. Uh, you, kind. You, uh, you're, we were talking off the air, but Ohio State, you're well aware of Ohio. And uh, I have to play this. We have to start right away okay. by talking about this gentleman oh. here.
1: Happy, Happy, Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Paul Lynn Halloween special starring Paul Lynn with Paul's special guest,
0: Tim Conway. Lars, Pinky, Tuscadero, Kelly, Margaret Hamilton, Billy Hayes, Billy Barty, special guest star, Lawrence Henderson, a special appearance by Betty White, and a rock and roll explosion, Kiss, (laughs) and So... I have Explosion. to open with this because I could do eight hours of podcast just on Paul Lind and the Halloween special. But, wow, Bruce, well, you, you I need you because I'm,
1: I'm as, as we speak, I'm writing the book and I'm writing that particular chapter. Really? I'm writing the book about how I wrote the worst TV shows in history and lived. <laughs> it, it's called It Seemed Like a Bad Idea at the Time, and it'll, it will be out next year. Very However, nice. I, actually, uh, t- I, just today I was struggling with the Halloween special. A chapter because there's it, it so much to say because it leads into so many other things that was what i was looking for i mean this all came about because of podcasts because people your age asked me about these things you know that i did 100 years ago and that you discovered on the internet uh and uh, so i thought okay there's a there's a way to do a memoir You know, you talk about, well, here's all the crap I did. And then you sneak in the good stuff.
0: (laughs) Exactly. You got to bring people aboard and say like, yeah, here's this. But I I will say, though, for its time, I do watch. I still watch it every year. And you have to put yourself in the lens. Like, I know my generation, so I'm 34. So millennials, Zoomers, they'll kind of look at things through their own lens. And you have to understand (laughs) that, look, it's not we're talking about 1976 variety shows were huge you had to get everybody you're on a network it's on cbs so they have to bring an ensemble of cbs actors and uh you know the whole cast of characters and that's just what it was at the time we had three stations
1: it, i know it was on abc but we did a cbs yeah. the star wars special was on cbs but exact the exact same rules applied it, we had to load it up with CBS stars and like we had to load up the Paul Paul show with ABC stars. So that was what they did. That was how they promoted. And as you say, there were three. It was in most towns. There were only three channels. And if they were lucky, they had a PBS affiliate at the university If they were, if they had a university. So for most people, it was just the three channels.
0: And in those days, you would see a lot of a lot of crossover and they would try to get uh, certain people on the air. And Paul Lind was one of them. And I am uh, since I'm not too far from Mount Vernon, Ohio, where he's from. I have visited several times Paul Lind's grave in Amity Cemetery in Mount Vernon, Ohio.
1: Looks like he's giving us the finger, doesn't it? (laughs) I've never seen that on a tombstone. It's like actively saying, oh, fuck you for coming here. (laughs)
0: <laughs> what what, what are you I'd
1: rather be doing <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I've, I've heard you talk about that bruce is that the fact that and you you wrote for paul for a, a long time and wrote on hollywood yeah. squares and his specials that you would yeah. paul lynn never considered himself to be that big of a star he wished he could have be, been a bigger star but the fact that it's 2023 and we're still talking about paul lynn today it would would floor him
1: I frequently say that if he knew we were we were speaking about him 40 years later, he would be twirling around in his grave. He would be astonished because he really didn't. I mean, he really didn't think he was that big because he was uh, on a game show. That was his biggest thing. And of course, it led to a lot of other stuff. But the people he came up with on Broadway, Mel Brooks and Woody Allen were huge movie stars, you know, winning Academy Awards. And uh, and that was not him. You know, and he uh, w- was also a writer. I mean, they all started writing sketches for television and he was writing sketches for Broadway reviews, uh, of which there were a lot back in the, in the day. Uh, but he, he, he kind of stopped writing after a while and just was doing the performing. But, you know, his, his, he, he never created a thing. He, he was a flavor. And it's very difficult to make, the, put, make a flavor of something the lead. And so he was only the lead in uh, in plays that other people had done when he would do the summer stock productions of it or when he was the host of a, of a variety special or of his own uh, touring show, which he would load up with other uh, performers. So it, it, he had a different kind of talent. But it was he stretched it as far as it could be stretched. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, I've seen the Paul Lynn show, and it had a big opening week. And I yeah. just think people... Dis- even in the 1970s, I think people could not think of Paul Lind as being a husband and a father, especially when he would come home from work, the the briefcase opens and the papers fly, and it's like, what do we got here? And he walks in and it's like, hi, honey, how was your day? And it's like, oh, I could use a martini. And I'm like, I don't know how many people are buying that.
1: (laughs) No, because, well, listen, the, the, the funny part of it was he broke out in Bye Bye Birdie, Playing exactly that, playing a harassed, but he was a, he was kind of a caricature of a Midwestern, you know, Sweet Apple, Ohio uh, uh, father. And his, he would, it, the part was written to his strong points, which were frustration and bitterness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he played that well, but he was not the central character. He didn't carry the thing. He, he was a big component, but it was a story. With, it was about Albert. It was about, you know, Elvis Presley's manager. <laughs> and his yeah. girlfriend. Ken and his mother. And and this was the, the subplot with the whole idea of the, of the parents or the girl that was gonna get kissed on Ed Sullivan. But when you put him at the center, absolutely, it didn't make any sense. You bring up a
0: good point about that because there were you had comedy acts and you had comedy writers. So you would watch the Marx brothers and you realize. That's not necessarily Groucho saying those great lines, that's S.J. Perelman, that's, uh, you know, you, you go through yeah. the whole laundry list of of writers that right. they had. they all had writers. And so, but by, you were getting to the 60s and the 70s when you had some of these performers, you had the Carlins and the Pryors who did write their own material. Right. And then yeah. as you mentioned with having Woody Allen and having Mel Brooks, that they wrote their material kind of ushered in a new Hollywood of people saying look you you can't just be a performer you have to be a little bit of both and, uh, and if you want to get your stuff on
1: uh I guess I mean I go I go back to uh, it's it's difficult to make uh, to make a, a person who's that much of a caricature the central character in anything I mean when especially on television when when generally the cent- even in, in sitcoms the central character is usually, a pretty standard issue or interesting, but is surrounded by crazy people. And, and that's the, the thing of their world. Mary Tyler Moore is surrounded by all of these, these, these crazy people. And she has to navigate her way through it. It's hard when the crazy person is the center of the thing. It just doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not a dictate, but it just, it doesn't really work a lot. I mean, there are, of course there are examples where it does, but, uh, but they're they are really few and far between. And, uh, um, I mean, I don't think it was a trend in Hollywood. I think it, that, you know, people, writers who want to be in control of their work become directors. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, if their work is built around them, they become, you know, uh, they become stars. And in television, it's, the comedians like uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Ray Romano and, and Kevin James and people who became big sitcom stars are, uh, you know, pretty much uh, every man-ish
0: yeah, they well, they what? That's what they did is they plucked them out of the the comedy clubs in those days. Yeah. Although although I was surprised Roseanne had a very long career based on she was kind of an antic character as well.
1: Yeah, she was, but but yeah, she was, but there were the, the people around her sister Jackie was the crazy one. Yes. And so it was very well calibrated. That was the best written show, I think, the best written comedy show ever. And the and the current one, the Connors, is just as good. It's really, really well written, and it's also written the only thing on television I can think of that's written from the point of view of, of working class people.
0: Yeah, well, th- is, that's that's what it fit, especially. And you've yeah. seen it from going to school in Ohio and being all kind of around the Midwest, is you see that it reached people. Brett Butler reached people. Yeah. It was but, that working feeling of, you know, even though mm-hmm. it's, yes, it's filmed in a lot in, in Studio City or in Burbank, but it yeah. still had that feeling of, this is what middle America represents. Even yeah. Even married with children to a certain extent had that feeling too.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, it was a, that was an extreme, you know, I mean, everybody on this show was extreme. It was, it was played for, it was played over the top initially, you know, which is a whole other, a whole other style, but, as opposed to modern family where everything is underplayed.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, you speaking of writing as you you you've written for essentially everybody. You can go through your IMDb and just listen just l- the list of names of people that you have written for is incredible.
1: I know, it's amazing. Unfortunately, I haven't slept with as many of them as I'd <laughs> like. But, but, you know, you can't have it all. No, of course not.
0: Well, you know, in the 70s we didn't have me too in those days.
1: <laughs> That's right. <you> guys- <laughs> As I'm, am fond of saying, if you remember the '70s, you weren't there.
0: <laughs> there was, a, there was a classic. I, I think it was Paul Williams. And I, do you know about the story?
1: Uh, but, I'm not sure. I know, Paul, Paul, Paul Williams, I know a few. Paul. I know a few stories about him, but
0: it was a story about where he met Michael Caine.
1: Huh? Yeah.
0: And it, it was, it was something along the lines of that Paul Williams met Michael Caine. It was like, it's an honor to meet you. You know, I've been a huge fan for years. And Michael Caine was like, "You lived in our house for like a, a whole summer. <laughs> how do you
1: not remember this?" Paul, Paul lived in Michael Caine's house.
0: Yeah, it was like he was there. I don't know if he was filming something, and it was like, "Yeah, oh. no, you lived with us. How do you not remember any of this?" Well, but, like you yeah, said, we know,
1: how we know how because yeah, you know, Paul has had a struggle. <laughs>
0: But, I mean, writing for these these huge names, I, I'll throw out another name that you, speaking of Ohio, is the Bob Hope. You wrote for Bob Hope. I did. What,
1: what did I, you write? What, I wrote what, for uh, Hope. Was this, I, one, I, of those, yeah, was this one of those liked. silly Christmas I, specials? I, never, I wrote jokes. I, I never really, I never worked on the specials. I wrote jokes and I would, uh, he put a telex in my apartment. So I would, he would do in the middle of the night, I hear bing bing bing, and it's hope in Jakarta. Need Dewey Sukarno jokes, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, uh, but, and and it was, it was all that. And he had a whole bunch of people who wrote. There was a, a woman I knew, I was in Chicago when I started doing it at Chicago Tribune. There was a housewife in, in, um, in suburban Chicago who wrote jokes for him, he'd met her somewhere. And, uh, and she was very fun. I think her name was Martha. I can't remember. But she, uh, we, we, were, you know, we were writing jokes. And then occasionally uh, I would, uh, he would be going out on the road or something, and, uh, and he would summon me to the house in Toluca Lake. And my favorite, uh, there, there were two, two times. Once where he, uh, we sat there, at uh, it was gas rationing was happening. And he went back and he brought out a little tin box a little fun and it was gas rationing jokes from World War II (laughs) and he deals them out on the table he goes yeah that's good that's a beauty nah I can't use that and I said Bob I'm competing with writers who've been dead for years (laughs) this is very sketchy and then the other time was uh, uh, he (coughs) he I came over. This is before you know faxes and all that kind of stuff. So I and I had written a bunch of stuff and I drove it over uh, to give to him. And uh, the guard at the the guard at the gate said, "Oh, he's he's gone out. I'll take them." I said, "Do me a favor. Would you read them to him? <laughs> because I want to hear. Them. <laughs> I want to hear how they play." When and then he called me up and he said, "You know, the guy's pretty funny. I should I should hire him." <laughs>
0: I've, I've been to that. To, well, I, I haven't been to the house, but I've driven by the house in Toluca Lake and uh, very unassuming on the outside. Very unassuming. But if
1: you want to see something assuming, go see the house in Palm Springs. Oh, yeah. That was on top of a mountain. And uh, it's the dead end of a cul-de-sac that goes straight up. It's called South Ridge, And it looks like the TWA terminal at, at Kennedy. You know, it, it, it's, just, it's like a huge, a, a huge concrete bird with open spaces which in Palm Springs can go either way, you know, either it's people are drop dead trying to get to the bathroom because it's so hot or it's pouring rain, but either way you have to go out <laughs> to get to the bath. It's weird. I,
0: like I've, I've heard about, uh, Bob Hope, Fred McMurray and a couple of others who just owned huge uh, well, parcels that, of land across that, California.
1: Actually what, what Mae West told me at one point when I was, when I was working with her and toward, toward the end, obviously. And she said, uh, She said, well, uh, uh, how are you doing? Are you you making a living? Are you comfortable? I said, yeah, I've got some money. And she said, do what I do, buy the valley. I said, what do you mean, buy the valley? She said, that's what we did. Hope McMurray and I, we bought the San Fernando Valley. It was all orange groves. And we divided it up. and Each of us took a third of it. (laughs) We developed it. Wow. And yet, and yet Dolores would be at a Ralph's
0: paying with coupons for. Well, there
1: you go. <laughs> no, she was a devout Catholic woman. So she, she did what she had to do.
0: Oh, yes. Well, I've I heard a Mae West. Speaking of Mae West story, I heard a May. I don't know if this is true. This is a Jackie Martling story. He said that he talked to Steve Rossi of of Allen and Rossi with Marty Allen yes. and that that Mae West performed some oral favors on him. And she and like he put his, as she's down on her knees, Steve Rossi puts his hand on like her head, you know, like, all right, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. And her wig fell off. <laughs> and uh, the story is that Steve Rossi is like, well, I guess this is show business. Well,
1: you know, I, I, I couldn't, I, I know I met him once, I knew Marty. I knew Marty really well, but I met him once and uh, uh, it could happen. I the the idea of Mae West getting to her knees is difficult and and (laughs) almost as difficult as the idea of her getting up from, you know, her her knees. So uh, I'm not sure about that. But uh, and also, I mean, she had uh, she had a type and Steve Rossi was not the type. I mean, she liked big muscle guys, but she also she liked black guys she liked you know she would go down she would she would always have a chauffeur always a great looking black guy and uh that several of them were boxers they were professional boxers and she was kind of hot for them and she would hire them to be her chauffeur because that was the only way they could get into her apartment building
0: oh okay
1: <laughs> if they were carrying packages or something her otherwise you know i mean you did not have black guests in that building no so yeah, I mean, those were the days. So uh, I don't, you know, she. Uh, so uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Is Steve Rossi still with us?
0: No, he he passed away. I think he he passed away before Marty Allen.
1: I think I think it's a great story. I mean, you know, he might he might be telling it about Clifton Webb and not Hey West, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. Goodbye, <laughs> dear. <laughs> so you know, it all blends after a while. What can I tell you?
0: Well, So in the in the 70s is when a lot of people started seeing your name pop up on in credits and everything. And you're now writing for the golden age of you're, you're writing for the present day, but also those golden age. Like we mentioned about Bob Hope. We mentioned May West. Um, and uh, you you also wrote for George Burns. Uh, was Jack yeah. Benny one of them, right?
1: I didn't write. Uh, I didn't. I knew, I knew Jack Benny slightly, but I didn't write for him, though.
0: OK, I, uh, I
1: did write for George.
0: But what was, what was it like? I mean, I know it's a kind of a, just a, an easy question. It's kind of a- well, you know. it was but-
1: mostly remembering uh, because I you know, a student of all of that stuff. And so I would have breakfast with him and I would remind him of things that he had done because we'd be plugging things into his, his routine because he worked until he was like a hundred, you know, playing Vegas and doing a lot of benefits and stuff. And so I would say, yeah, there was this joke about that. Oh yeah, we did that. I remember I was in Cleveland with Gracie. We were appearing with Fink's mules. That was, that was, a- <laughs> and he would start telling me about that. And I said, you should just talk about this as, you know you don't even need jokes, but we had great jokes. You know, we had the Pointer Sisters opened for him at one point, and we had a joke uh, the, uh, the stage manager came to me and said, George, uh, there is there is a hole in the wall between your dressing room and the pointer sisters dressing room and we would like to plug it up and dry- nah, let them look
0: <laughs> <clears throat> so like when you're writing for these these great comics from the the old vaudeville or radio days when you're writing you uh, since you were also a fan i'm assuming you had to keep it in mind by saying I have to write this as in this is a George Burns joke or yeah. I'm writing for Bob Hope. But you you remember the days, the USO right. days of the 40s that you're like, OK, this is what you have to do. It's like, hey, how about that uh, Viagra, ladies and gentlemen? Things just keep getting harder every day. You know, it's That's doing bad. a Bob Hope style. I, I've talked. I've had Dave Thomas on my podcast here and who does the greatest Bob Hope.
1: Bob Hope, yeah. And really, really to
0: write and perform and doing that, you have to get that cadence. So I would assume if you're doing, if it say for example, like you said, you didn't write for Jack Benny, but you keep that in mind. You're thinking, let's see, 39 years old. You've got the Maxwell. You've got you know uh, sure. you know Anaheim, uh, Azusa, Azusa, and
1: Manga. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first of all, I have to point out I was very young. They were very old. People say, how old are you? You wrote to all those dead people. I said, well, you know, I was very young. I was at the beginning of my career and they were, you know, arcing towards the end of theirs. But I was a big student of all of them. In the kind of writing I do, you have to do a little due diligence. You have to listen to them and pay attention to how they deliver stuff and what what world they're living in and working in and apply it to what they're looking for at the moment. And you being a playwright or a screenwriter is much more difficult because you have to come up with those characters yourself and write them. They they hand me a character, they hand me a persona that I get to tell. It's kind of like, you know, Cher walks in the room and Bob Mackey knows the figure he's dealing with. It's he's not going to give her the same thing he would give Lizzo, you know. I mean, they come in with who they are. Uh, the problem has always been on award shows and things like that when you have someone like Keanu Reeves, who doesn't have a stage persona. You know, I mean, he's John Wick or he's he's Bill and Ted, you know, or he's, he, he yeah. does, who is he? He's they've never seen Keanu Reeves live, you know, unless he's fronting or maybe fronts a rock band, you know, like, like Johnny Depp, but it's uh, um, used to, but it's um, that, that's much more difficult. And and so you have to just like, write specifically for the moment, but when a comedian comes in, you know, someone who's got such a, such a strong personality, I mean, Groucho would be a great example. And Paul, Paul's a great example, because with Paul, it's basically one line, you know, and, and he can, the thing, he could make any line funny just by his delivery. I mean, in the, in the Halloween special, my favorite thing is when he says, get with your little dog, Toto. Who gets a laugh on Toto? You know, I mean, <laughs> they, he, were banned, they were banned for years. They never got a laugh saying their name. You know? But Paul can get a laugh on it just because of the way the way he said, you know, such stuff.
0: Well, you, even in the in those days, you had in the 70s, you had Art Matrano, who was known for doing the da-da-da-da-da-da, and, right, yeah. that da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, right. Or you had Billy Saluga who did the You Can Call Me Ray. So well, it that was about their
1: signature me. their signature thing. And the, the sad part is they really were funny. And uh, um, and you don't remember anything else they did. Yeah. <laughs> because the signature was so strong.
0: Well Art Matrano of course was one of the stars of uh, Joni Loves Chachi.
1: Well who could forget that? <laughs> Other than Joni and Chachi both of whom have forgotten that, who could? Forget
0: <laughs> but I mean so well you, you mentioned that now uh, we could segue to the award shows because yes. <laughs> I
1: talked to
0: I've talked to John Biner And uh, back in the days where you had those, you would say you would have an impressionist and they would talk about somebody from back in the day and said, and here's John Wayne, here's how he would sound something like this, or Humphrey Bogart, and today's stars don't have that personality, that distinct personality, if we're still going back to the well of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jack Nicholson. Even I know. Today.
1: It's, it's true. You know, Rich Little is still playing Vegas. He's at the Tropicana every night. And he's doing Richard Nixon and Johnny Carson and Paul Lind and a whole bunch of people who have who've long since shuffled off their mortal coil. Uh, and I'm assuming his audience is older and they get all of all of those things. But the, it's true. They aren't as distinctive now. I mean, uh, even the drag queens, you know, I mean, the, the they're still doing Judy Garland because she's doable. You know, I mean, and they have distinctive voices like Catherine Hepburn and Betty Davis, and Marlena Dietrich and Salula Bankhead. They had very distinctive deliveries, but you have to explain who they are some of the times uh, because it, it, do Julia Roberts, do Nicole Kidman, you know, I mean, uh, it's, uh, do Robert Downey Jr. Do The Rock. <laughs> I mean, these are big stars now. So uh, how do you come out and do Hugh Jackman? I mean, you can do Wolverine, I suppose. You know, you can do some of those characters, which are so distinctive. But it's it's true. There isn't that that, that the era of that personality performer has gone away. But, and, and, you know, there, there were, I mean, there was a lot of, that was a lot of because of the times were were more innocent. We were not all connected, uh, you know. I mean, when you consider that Esther Williams and Carmen Miranda and Sonia Henny were huge movie stars, one swam, one skated, and the other was like a you know, Charo is now. I mean, because the the American public had never seen anything like that.
0: Who was the bubble lady?
1: Well, the, the uh, Sally Rand. Yeah, who Sally was a, Rand. A she was, yeah, she did a fan dance and a bubble dance. And then there was Lily Saint-Cyr who who did an, her whole act in a bathtub with bubbles and almost showing herself. But, but there were always bubbles around. Yeah, but they, those were, they were burlesque acts. They were, uh, you know, that was no, another school.
0: <laughs> but it's got, it really has to be, since you you wrote or head writer of the Oscars for what, what, 20, 25, 25, 25 years? 25, yeah. And and of course your first Oscars was the most notorious one, right?
1: Yes indeed, Rob Lowe, <laughs> Rob So that
0: was the that was that was the infamous 89 Oscars where uh like what what was that process like? And you're dealing with Rob Lowe again, is somebody that he's been in a lot of things, handsome guy, but uh eh, not many people are going to say, "Here, I'm going to do a good Rob Lowe impression." <laughs>
1: There you go. It would be maybe of the sex tape. That would be a great impression. <laughs> of course, we never really saw his face, so you'd have to have a really great ass to do that. I mean, but I'm auditioning, it. by the way, if you would like to do that. Starring okay, Sally
0: them. Rand and...
1: Uh... I'm, all of them. I have a very large casting couch. I don't care. You can cancel me. I don't care.
0: The, the Rob Lowe sex tape featuring Charlotte Ray.
1: Well, you know, the, yeah, God. <laughs> she wouldn't have minded, I'll tell you. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the reason that show is so notorious is mostly because of, of Rob. Uh, I mean, because three weeks after uh, the, the show, the sex tape surfaced. And so every time there was a story about uh, Rob Lowe's sex tape, they said, Rob Lowe most recently seen Dancing with Snow White on the infamous Academy Awards broadcast that Disney sued over. Was arrested today or, you know, was discovered today with an underage girl in a hotel, whatever. But uh, that that. So the legend of that show grew because it was it was it was notorious. And uh, I mean, it was put together by Alan Carr, very flamboyant, no longer with us producer who produced Greece and made a fortune doing that. And then La Cage aux Foles on Broadway and uh, was a big showman, and he wanted to have this number uh, open the thing at the Coconut Grove with a lot of old movie stars. And so he had a lot of old movie stars. Unfortunately, they were not as we remembered them, mostly. mostly. And the audience was kind of in shock at all of these altas uh, up, up there being helped around the stage. And, and then the pinnacle of the number was Rob Lowe, Snow White, who was it's a long story snow white was visiting hollywood and she goes to the coconut grove and here comes rob Lowe, and they do they do a number why they do proud mary nobody knows it was because it was an, an up-tempo and thing and you know rob not a big musical comedy performer but he threw himself into it and uh, and it was you know it was as i said it was no worse than any other academy award number you know the year before terry gar had gone on an airplane wing singing flying down to rio and that was terrible, but Rio didn't sue. <laughs> Disney sued. So um, that elevated the thing or, well, or, or de elevated it, one or the other.
0: Well, I, I, you know, you watch, I, I go back in time, I'll watch some of the old Oscars. I think it was the 75 Oscars where Bob Hope opens the show by saying, uh, Yeah, it's Academy Awards, or so I call it my house, Passover.
1: It's a classic joke.
0: It's, great. it's a great uh, yeah, Bob Hope it's
1: joke. a great Bob Hope joke, absolutely. But,
0: but then when you're writing for these award shows, because I you know you've had Billy Crystal. there was the there's the one you with David Letterman, um you know Chris Rock. and it's it's tough because you're also dealing with Hollywood people that are a little bit more, you know, a little thinner skinned and you're do do you have to ride that wave because I know there were a lot of jokes you guys probably wanted to get in there to slip in and they either got rejected or they didn't go over too well. Oh, like, yeah, how, how but- did that go?
1: Well, um, you know, it's a, very, it's a very pompous evening. It's always been that. But they, we've kind of taken the piss out of it a lot. And there are a lot of jokes that the, the problem is that, you know, you have a room full of industry insiders and uh, you want to make jokes about that. And you're not exactly sure how far those will travel. But we discovered that uh, thanks to the, you know, Wall Street, thanks to, when, when the studios all became owned by multinationals, then suddenly they were on the front page of the wall street journal and uh, and everybody kind of knew who the players were uh, who, who had never really known aside from the big mogul names they'd never known all nobody i mean mike ovitz was a punchline because everybody knew who he was at the time he was the guy who had started caa who was now running disney and failing upwards so uh that was a legitimate joke but uh, most of the time um uh, you just you just have to tread a line. You have to realize you're entertaining the audience at home as well as the audience in the theater. And the, the biggest problem with the Oscars is not that so much. It's that, that there are only four acting awards. So unless you have famous people nominated in the other categories, it's a long haul between drinks of water and for the audience, the, the home audience. And so you have to people it with stars presenting the awards and you have to hope that they're they're up to the task, that they're not going to be too terrified or the, you know, because any, anything you say at the Oscars reverberates, <laughs> literally. Last year, it was a flap that oh, reverberated yeah. that night, that moment, and forever. But like Sally Field, you know, who finally got to monetize her speech. Uh, uh, you like me, you really like me. And she got to do a visa commercial 20 years later off the joke of that speech. Well, so. that's the,
0: you know, in the, in the days of having three channels is that you can do an Oscars and have all these, uh, these, uh, categories. And now when there's so many different options to the point where you can watch a previous Oscars on YouTube, the same time as today's Oscars. yeah So it's, so you're competing against everything now. So you can't necessarily have the, uh, the award for the, the best stage hand, whatever. Cause people are like, yeah, what else is on right now? So you have to keep everything a little bit more peppy and have the main categories and then a performance and this and that. So you got to yeah. make sure that this is all going to fit in in this uh, time frame.
1: Uh, yes. And it's uh, so much, I mean, everything was on the uh, downward trend because there are too many awards. There are too many award shows and people get tired of them. And they most of them are are lead-ups to the Oscars because they want to establish the, the campaign, and the Oscar is the big one, but for the uh, the audience at home, the Oscar doesn't—it's not so big anymore because they've they've already seen Nicole Kidman give her acceptance speech this year. They've already seen Kate Blanchett give three different acceptance speeches. So if she wins again, it's not going to be that big deal. But then, of course, COVID also uh, trashed it because it, they trashed the movie business. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the interesting thing about uh, the year that the, the big COVID year when Nomadland won best picture is that uh, every, every one of the movies nominated was available for home streaming and nobody watched any of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was, uh, and it, now they're clawing back from, uh, from the, uh, from theaters being closed. But of course, the things people are going to see are the things that don't tend to get nominated. However, they did, now, Top Gun Maverick is in the is in the running, and uh, but you know, I mean, Ant Man will not be in next year's running, most no. likely. What about but Cocaine? There, be, That's coming out. The, the, the big, the big pictures, which are tentpole movies, that so, you know, but because they have ten categories, ten in the category, they can have room for art pictures like everything, everywhere, all at once, all over your face, and whatever the title of that is.
0: Well, you uh, and you've you've seen the medium change, whether it's writing for award shows or movies or TV shows. And, you know, we've seen how many great movie theaters have closed over the last just couple of years, even before COVID, that this was a trend in the direction to the point where in 2019, Scorsese has The Irishman, puts it out in the movie theaters for like two weeks, and then it's available on streaming on Netflix. Well, that's
1: because he he made it for Netflix. That Mm -hmm. was not his decision. That was Netflix's deal with him. I mean, it was it was made, but they wanted it to be uh, awards eligible. I mean, and they were kind of experimenting. In the interim, Netflix bought a bunch of theaters. They, bought, they own the Egyptian out here. They own the Paris Theater in New York. And they bought it specifically so they could have theatrical distribution of their movies. Uh, in the, it's in a small window. And then they put... The thing on the service and eventually they have noticed they recycle it and it comes back they have the bay theater out here too out in the palisades where a lot of academy voters live
0: it's so, it's it th- things are changing so much to the point where a movie that you know you can make a movie or maybe even a sequel are now becoming tv shows and it starts getting to the point where these 12 episode tv shows where you get to about episode six through nine you're like yeah, they this is kind of filler. They're just trying to get the episodes going. And then it starts to crescendo towards the end to, all right, I'm hooked for the next season. When's it going to be available? Oh, a year and a half from now. Great. Um, but that's the thing. The medium has really changed and now Hollywood has to con, continue adapting this. And I, I where do you, where do you go as a, as a writer? Where do you go with this? Is this just, you just keep doing your job and keep going well, away? I,
1: the good news is that uh it's it, what has been the golden age for scripted uh, television. And there's so many things that can be written as opposed to reality shows, which are, of course, written, but they're written by people who are called segment producers. And, uh, and they're, it's, it's an offhand kind of writing because people don't deliver the material exactly as you write it. You, you, you give them the thing to play and they play it. But uh, so there, there are many more opportunities, and, and that's part of the Writers Guild contract negotiations now about uh, establishing living wages for all of these different kinds of writing that now occur. You know, as, as, the, as the studio, as the system, the studio system's gone, but as all of that changes, the, the, the deal changes. Um, I think it's just that my favorite things are soap opera writers because there's, they, there's never an end in sight you know, so. <laughs> Never. I mean, they're just 20 years later and they're still continuing the story, whatever the story is. It's, you know, whatever happening in Chagrin Falls, you know, it's, it's, if that's the story. So, I mean, on a. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you when you do a you take a, a, a young adult, a YA novel and you turn it into an HBO series, it does have a beginning, a middle and an end. You just have to decide how many episodes you need to tell that story, how deeply you're going to tell it. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, it's kind of, the sky is kind of the limit. The sky and the budget is kind of the limit.
0: It almost seems like we're back in the days of the contract players. Cause I'm noticing when you watch a Netflix show, you're like, Hey, the, the store clerk in this show is the drug dealer in that show. And you're like, wait a second. Are they just like, are we back to the days of like Louis B. Mayer signs you this contract and we're,
1: I don't know if any actor who has a Netflix contract, like okay. like people had contracts at Warner Brothers in the day. Uh, I think that the the casting people like certain people, and uh, filmmakers watch each other's work, and they they know who people are, and so when they're brought up as as potentials, they 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 say, "Yeah, let's bring him in, and let's see let's see how that works." So I, but I don't think it's a, I don't see anybody. I mean that would be uh you don't need it I mean to have a stable of, of people who you have to supply with work you know that was the the, the thing about those contracts is you you went from one picture to you guaranteed them so many pictures mm-hmm. a year, but you know that was then
0: or like the Brill building and you know you're, you just go in from nine to five and you start writing songs for uh, That's right. yeah. everybody
1: for, for whoever was publishing you. <laughs>
0: So uh, you mentioned Chagrin Falls. Good segue uh, yep. about uh, so Tim Conway. Yeah. My, my, my grandparent, my grandma was from Chagrin <laughs> Falls. I proposed I propose to my my now wife in Chagrin Falls. In right, Chagrin Falls. Falls. And uh, um, so was, was Tim Conway, was he one of the easiest? Who, who, I'm going to throw you another softball. Who are some of the easiest people to write for? Where it's just like, oh, I know exactly what I can do. I know what's what's a good laugh line. And who is somebody that would be a little bit more difficult? Where you're like, all right, I'm going to have to have a, a uh, couple of cups of coffee, maybe a little, uh, little toots magoots, and <laughs> stay uh, up tonight.
1: Uh, well, well, yeah, you know, George Carlin, because he was so so smart and uh, and wrote for, wrote everything for himself. And I, I worked with him on television stuff. But uh, uh, they were more. Di- I mean, the difficult ones, as I said were the ones who didn't have a persona. If somebody has a persona and you can dive into that, latch onto it, it, it kind of comes because you, if, if you're paying close enough attention, you know their rhythm. So it's not hard to write for them. But I mean, it may be hard to write for a specific uh, t- audience, a task. I mean, <laughs> when George Burns would do like, uh, we once had to go to Cleveland to the sanitation workers dinner. It was it was a favor. <laughs> somebody had dropped out and he was doing it as a favor. I forget who was somebody had gotten sick and couldn't do it and so he was doing it and they flew him in. and the sanitation workers of Cleveland, uh, there were many of them named Nunzio. of course and uh, and they ruled they ruled the garbage with a, a firm hand. And so, you know, you, you off, we got off the plane thinking, oh, my God, this is we walked into like, you know, the Cosa Nostra reunion. <laughs> the Feast of San Gennaro. And, and they were honoring somebody and you had to you, you, know, you didn't want to make the wrong joke about, about him, but you had to personalize it. You know, so that was difficult because it was kind of like a minefield but then, you know, it was George. So, I mean, he was such a benign character and, and, uh, you know, salty in the sense that he was, uh, he, his pose was as an old lecher, you know, who liked young girls. And, and the, the joke was always, uh, people say, why don't I date uh, girls my own age? There are no girls my own age. Yeah. <laughs> They're all dead. <laughs> pull, pull up the cigar and, uh... yeah, right. Exactly. So, um, so we had to navigate around all of that. So that was, that would, that would be difficult. It's more, I'll tell you the, the situation is what makes things difficult. It's not the performer unless, you know, unless you're trying to make Michelle Pfeiffer funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, pre- Michelle Pfeiffer presenting an award, you know, this is, you just, it's just, you know, white gold glamour. So gorgeous. And you don't, she doesn't need, if she can cut, do one sort of caustic line, that would be fun. But you know want to mess up with us so you just give it write something that, that's elegant that isn't funny although the first that first oscar show uh she she had she came out with dennis quaid uh she was nominated for dangerous liaisons and he had just played jerry lee lewis at great Bulls of fire and was not nominated and was very pissed off and had enjoyed a cocktail and uh they came out there and he was kind of out of control and she was kind of you know giving him stink eye big time and they they just sort of i mean there was there was nothing they could talk about so that you know i think the dialogue was about the category but it wasn't even funny it was just like you know let's get on with it but he was having a, none of it he was having a hard time with it.
0: I, if, if i ever met dennis quaid because i know he he performs he does he's a singer songwriter now Um, is that I, the only thing I would ask him is about doing that movie with Mickey Rooney that was, or is it made for TV special? Was it Bill?
1: Yeah, I think it was a TV movie. Yes, Bill. I didn't know Dennis was in it. That was where where Mickey Rooney played uh, a mentally challenged person.
0: Yes. And it's, it's, uh, I mean, full on Tropic Thunder.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it it would be, it would be. But you know. They, they've forgotten because they still hold him liable for Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> <laughs> or Mr. Uniyoshi in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oof. Yeah. I know, uh, you know, and it's, it's often held up as like uh, an example of uh, uh, egregious cultural appropriation and racism and all that. But you have to put it in perspective. It was 15 years after World War II ended. Which was not a long time, and it was before everybody was eating sushi. It was before we had. It was before American pop culture had embraced Japan. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of things like Sayonara. that were stories about the American occupation in Japan, and so uh, the Japanese there were still considered uh, legitimate objects of fun, whether this is a good for the world or not is another issue. But so in the context of the time, it wasn't so incendiary and he was, it it was Mickey Rooney who everybody knew was a physical comic. So he was just doing another physically, physical comic routine and people were doing them all. A buddy Hackett was doing a Chinese restaurant routine that was on Ned Sullivan all the time. So, uh, you have well, to, kind of, of, of course, back. John
0: Wayne, John what? Wayne and the Conqueror.
1: Yeah, oh, well, that's still that's brilliant, though. So, uh, <laughs> you're beautiful in your wrath," <laughs> he says to Susan Hayward. God, uh, well, um, and
0: and that Gilligan's Island, like you, you. Then you got to the '60s where it's like, well, you know, we we need some, uh, we need some natives, we need some native people. We're like, all right, well, uh, this guy's Sicilian. Can you play an Indian? Hey, Larry yeah. Storch, can you, can you play?
1: Well, you know, Rita Moreno is very fond of saying that she played everybody but a Puerto Rican. <laughs> you know, I mean, she played every kind of ethnicity uh, uh, because she was exotic. You know, she played a, a Thai princess in The King and I. You know, so, I mean, there you go.
0: That's in those days. But uh, but then there's also people who are universally beloved, and that's Dolly Parton. And well, that yeah. brings me to. Who what-
1: only played Dolly Parton. No, yes. And, and it's every role she plays is a variation of, but she's a traditional movie star she's not going to get too away from from her her own persona and why should she
0: no of course well it, t- I, talk about that musical so you helped helped write this well this- i have a music
1: we have i've written a musical uh with it's about a guy it's a very small show about a guy it happened during covid uh he uh, uh is a a uh, washed-up, uh, a gay comic. He's like forty, turning forty, and he's working at. He's never happened. He's working at a comedy club in New York, and the club closes. COVID happens, and he, uh, he his relationship breaks up, and he has to quarantine in the attic of his parents' home in Longview, Texas, where he has an intimate relationship with his imaginary friend Dolly Parton. She comes off of a poster that he's had for years in his room, so. Um, uh, we wrote it at, at, on a grant, on a PPP grant that happened during COVID for, for a theater in Florida. They loved it, and we did a Zoom of it, and they loved it. And so I had to go to, to Dolly and get the music rights, and I thought she would shoot it down because it's not her brand. And she loved it, and now she's our partner. And we've done four productions of it around the country, and we're unveiling it May 17th in Nashville, where she will uh, appear and give it the, her papal blessing. And uh, it's called Here You Come Again. Sounds like a porno, but isn't. <laughs> the subtitle is uh, How Dolly Saved My Life in 12 Easy Songs. And it's her catalog. It's uh, all catalog. Dolly so Some you know, all the big hits. And some, you know, that are you amazed that she wrote. Um, and it's it's been great. We did it in Delaware and Texas and Florida and Pittsburgh. So uh, now Nashville. And then we'll see what happens. We're going to do it at Goodspeed in Connecticut next summer. And soon we'll... Probably come to Ohio.
0: Yeah, I would. I would love to check that out at some point. Uh, you know, even if I have to travel for it, I'm I'm happy with that. I'd like to see it, Road especially the, Dolly Parton is America's. That, that's what they said when um, when uh, Betty White passed away. They said, "Oh, who's America's sweetheart? Is it Henry Winkler? Is it, uh, is it Dolly Parton?" And I'm like, "Look, we're we're all getting it wrong. We all know it's Ted Kaczynski." But-
1: <laughs> well. <laughs> I'm
0: a comic. That's
1: just. That's There's a cult.
0: <laughs> now we need a musical written about Ted
1: Kaczynski. Yeah, I think so. I think you should call Lin Manuel Miranda. He can he can collaborate with Andrew Lloyd Webber, and they have you know, they'll have all the Broadway you want.
0: <laughs> just read the manifesto.
1: That's right. Just read it. <laughs> That's it. Uh, well, I and this—it's the one set, you know. It's like it's a Unabomber cabin, right? <laughs> one step, a lot of pretty mountains behind it, a goat.
0: <laughs> See, I, I love this. We're just just spitballing, and then uh, and there then you when that then, then uh, in five years, every you're like, what is this? What is this Unabomber? It's on Broadway. It's a it's a comedy. What's going on here? It's it's a little off Broadway. It's really yeah. off Broadway, but uh, well, you
1: know. I mean, 30, was it 30 years ago? About 30 years ago, somebody made a musical out of Titanic. And it was a Broadway hit. It won the Tony and it's being revived now. And thanks partially to the the movie, which is 25 years ago already, it's also being revived. But uh, I mean, a musical of Titanic, a musical.
0: Unless you make it like a musical in a musical, any, like the producers, like Springtime for Hitler, is that you do like, a you Unibom know, Lionel,
1: Lionel Bard, who wrote Oliver, which was a gigantic hit, the musical of Oliver Twist, one of his other shows that was in London that never came over. It was called Blitz! Exclamation mark! And Blitz was all about a bunch of people in a bomb shelter in London during World War Two. It was very big in London and no one thought it would work in this country. And they, they were probably correct.
0: Well, I'm, I'm noticing this trend in when it comes to musical theaters that you back in the day, we had, you know, whether it's Greece, West Side Story, that it was the play, then it becomes a movie. Now we have, then we became movies that turn into plays. Now we have like uh, just a concept of something that turns into a musical now, like, uh, well, like American it, Idiot generally, the Green Day.
1: the sad part is, you know, musicals have never been original. Most of them are based on something else, a play or a book. And then, of course, uh, the trend with, came with to be based them on movies because there was a brand, and uh, Broadway became a real estate business where brands were were felt like easier to sell than originals. And uh, now, uh, it's, people are afraid to write music for Broadway, so they they do catalog shows like like the one I've done. I mean, it's uh, because it's easier to, to to plug in a story. I mean, Mamma Mia is gigantic using the ABBA catalog. And so you see shows, there's a Britney Spears show coming in. Uh, there's a there's a Neil Diamond show that's now on Broadway. There's a Sinatra show. There are a whole bunch of, of jukebox musicals coming in because uh, the music is easier for people to deal with and have to deal with the original score. And the irony is the biggest hits on Broadway in the last 20 years have been original shows, Hamilton, Book of Mormon. I mean, they're gigantic and they are totally original. I mean, Book of Mormon is, you know, South Park, essentially, but but they are original in and of themselves, even Wicked, which is a take on The Wizard of Oz and has been running for 150 years. So uh, if they would look and they go, people do want to see something that they haven't seen before. With music that they haven't heard before, there is that hunger, So.
0: Yeah. Well, otherwise, every school production is going to continue doing rent
1: (laughs) or or Greece or Or they they do. They do the cleaned up version of rent and of Avenue Q. Oh, yes. You know, because because the adult stuff is too much for the high schools to do, but they do them anyway.
0: Yeah. It's it's like, let's see, we're going to do Avenue Q, but we can't do. Let's see. The Internet is for porn. We can't do every everyone's a little bit racist and we can't do that.
1: There is a version. I mean, uh, my friends wrote it, and I've actually seen it because a friend's kid was in a production of it, and we went to see it. And it's Just, cute. It's cute, but it's 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 not so much a parody of Sesame Street as it is an episode of Sesame Street.
0: Yeah, it's Avenue G.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> not even Avenue PG. Avenue G. <laughs> but Bruce, I, is- I've always thought that the reason West Side Story, you know, has lived forever is because everybody has done it in high school. Yeah, I think so, too. Everybody knows West Side Story because, you know, and now, of course, you know, you can't do it unless you have a whole lot of Puerto Ricans in school, because God forbid you should have anybody playing something that they aren't or or doing what we used to call acting.
0: I played Chino. I was Chino in my West Side Story production, and I dyed my hair black. And this was during the days of when goth was really big and everyone's like are you going over the dark side, Tony? And I'm like, no, well, yes, my hair, but I'm, pl- I'm going to play I'm, I'm <laughs> a method playing. acting. It's
1: true. Very good.
0: <laughs> so Bruce, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you. you doing this. Uh, before you go, uh, yeah. before we wrap it up, I, I have, you have to tell our audience the David Niven story.
1: Oh my the phone, God.
0: The phone story. Well, it- <laughs> cause it, this is just, I, this is perfect for my audience.
1: All right uh, really okay cool well I uh, I hope they all kn- they know who everybody is but uh, David Niven was a, a young contract player who came over from England uh, and uh, he became Sir David Niven and you know him do I have to explain from around the world in eighty days and Pink he walked won six separate tables but he was the epitome of a debonair English gentleman I mean Hugh Grant you know Hugh Grant uh, 30s style and he uh, uh, Joan Crawford was a big star at Metro, and uh, she was quite wild. She she enjoyed a beverage. And uh, so he was uh, he had to take her out because every all the new guys at Metro had to escort Joan Crawford someplace because she she had quite a libido. And so they went out, <clears throat> they, and they, uh, after the, whatever they had to go to a premiere, whatever it was, they went back to her house to, to drop her off, and she said, She said, oh, it's boring, it's raining, boring cats and dogs. Come inside, we'll have a drink. So he couldn't say no, so he goes inside and he says, says, look, if I'm going to be late, I I have to call the people I'm staying with because I have to tell them I'm going to be late. She said, well, the phone's over there. And she said, I'll I'll just go upstairs and change. And she had one of those staircases that kind of curved around. And back in the day, people had telephone rooms because there weren't extensions all over the house. Uh, There were, but... There would be a telephone, right, where generally the butler would answer the phone or something. It would be in the front hall. And the phone was right there in the curve of the staircase. And so Niven went over, and he's dialing, and he's waiting for the phone. He's waiting for the phone, and he's noticing that there's uh, dripping. There's, uh, the puddle the is it's puddles forming at his feet because the rain is apparently, she has a leak in the roof. And he looks up to see where the leak is, and she is naked, straddling the banister, and she's peeing. <laughs> and he thought to himself, "Welcome to Hollywood." <laughs> it's now, like
0: Rossi and May West. Out,
1: this is a story that was told to me by his son, David Evans Jr., many years ago, and it's it, you know he told it to a lot of people. <laughs> so, I mean, there there's a, a hardcore John Crawford fans who get very annoyed, you know, because they they. They're all cineasts and they like her. And, you know, they think that Christina Crawford trashed her for life and uh, her daughter with the book and all that stuff. So, and then, you know, the Faye Dunaway movie. It's a long, it's a long and sort of. And it doesn't stop because they did the Betty Davis and Joan Crawford thing. Ryan Murphy did on on FX. Huge, mm-hmm. Betty and Joan. So the Joan Crawford, uh, you know, she, her persona will live forever. And if she thought that it was living forever because of this, she would kill herself. <laughs> she would just... I'm sure she would just go nuts.
0: Yeah, I mean David Niven. I mean that's a that's something. <laughs> if he wasn't as great of an actor, I mean that that'd been something to be known for. It's like who? What, well, he, who, be, he who became
1: a, he was a big movie star, but uh, I mean he was really a big movie star. Mm-hmm. He, uh, but this was when he was you know starting out.
0: He was a little wet behind the ears.
1: Yeah, but a lot of people. I mean Lee Majors has a great Joan Crawford story because he, his first movie was with her. I think it was one of her, you know, after Baby Jane, I think it was Straight Jacket, maybe or uh, Pandemonium. One of those movies, or not Pandemonium. There was another Possessed. She she did a couple of uh, of of uh, horror movies where she was like the crazy lady. I think she was the ringmaster of a circus. Anyway, he has a great story, but I'll let him tell it.
0: Well, stay, yeah. Stay tuned. No, I'll, uh,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Bruce, again, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, plugs. Sure. I know you're talking, you're working on your book. Uh, you said that's going to be available. Uh, be some next year, look,
1: look for it and buy will, uh... it.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, I will definitely be one of the first to buy it and I'll have to, I'll have to have you back on. We'll talk more about, uh, I would love that. and get
1: to. that'd be great.
0: But Bruce Valanche. Thank you so much for doing the check your brain podcast and talking to me. It's been a real pleasure.
1: <laughs> yeah, and... I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> where is my brain? I love, I have, I forgot the check. That's the problem. I can't exactly.
0: Play. Yeah, so, so did I, apparently. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> Bruce, th- thank you again. Okay. I appreciate Thanks. it. And All thank right. you for listening to the Check Your Brain podcast, everybody. Here, wherever you're listening to this, my name is Tony Mazer.